Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www.librivox.org. Washington Square by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Don Murphy in El Segundo, California. Chapter 15 He had been puzzled by the way that Catherine carried herself. Her attitude at this sentimental crisis seemed to him unnaturally passive. She had not spoken to him again after that scene in the library, the day before his interview with Morris, and a week had elapsed without making any change in her manner. There was nothing in it that appealed for pity, and he was even a little disappointed at her not giving him an opportunity to make up for his harshness by some manifestation of liberality, which should operate as a compensation. He thought a little of offering to take her for a tour in Europe, but he was determined to do this only in case she should seem mutely to reproach him. He had an idea that she would display a talent for mute reproaches, and he was surprised at not finding himself exposed to these silent batteries. She said nothing, either tacitly or explicitly, and as she was never very talkative, there was now no especial eloquence in her reserve. And poor Catherine was not sulky, a style of behavior for which she had too little historic talent. She was simply very patient. Of course she was thinking over her situation, and she was apparently doing so in a deliberate and unimpassioned manner, with a view of making the best of it. "'She will do as I have bidden her,' said the doctor, and he made the further reflection that his daughter was not a woman of great spirit. I know not whether he had hoped for a little more resistance, for the sake of a little more entertainment, but he said to himself, as he had said before, that though it might have its momentary alarms, paternity was, after all, not an exciting vocation. Catherine, meanwhile, had made a discovery of a very different sort. It had become vivid to her that there was a great excitement in trying to be a good daughter. She had an entirely new feeling, which may be described as a state of expectant suspense about her own actions. She watched herself, as she would have watched another person, and wondered what she would do. It was as if this other person, who was both herself and not herself, had suddenly sprung into being, inspiring her with a natural curiosity as to the performance of untested functions. 
"'I am glad I have such a good daughter,' said her father, kissing her after the lapse of several days. "'I am trying to be good,' she answered, turning away with a conscience not altogether clear. "'If there is anything you would like to say to me, you know you must not hesitate. You needn't feel obliged to be so quiet. I shouldn't care that Mr. Townsend should be a frequent topic of conversation. But whenever you have anything particular to say about him, I shall be very glad to hear it.' "'Thank you,' said Catherine. "'I have nothing particular at present.' He never asked her whether she had seen Morris again, because he was sure that if this had been the case she would tell him. She had, in fact, not seen him. She had only written him a long letter. The letter, at least, was long for her, and it may be added that it was long for Morris. It consisted of five pages in a remarkably neat and handsome hand. Catherine's handwriting was beautiful, and she was even a little proud of it. She was extremely fond of copying, and possessed volumes of extracts which testified to this accomplishment. Volumes which she had exhibited one day to her lover, when the bliss of feeling that she was important in his eyes was exceptionally keen. She told Morris in writing that her father had expressed the wish that she should not see him again, and that she begged he would not come to the house until she should have made up her mind. Morris replied with a passionate epistle, in which he asked to what, in heaven's name, she wished to make up her mind. Had not her mind been made up two weeks before, and could it be possible that she entertained the idea of throwing him off? Did she mean to break down at the very beginning of their ordeal, after all the promises of fidelity she had both given and extracted? And he gave an account of his own interview with her father an account not identical at all points with that offered in these pages. "'He was terribly violent,' Morris wrote, "'but you know my self-control. I have need of it all when I remember that I have it in my power to break in upon your cruel captivity.' Catherine sent him, in answer to this, a note of three lines. "'I am in great trouble. Do not doubt of my affection, but let me wait a little and think.' The idea of a struggle with her father, of setting up her will against his own, was heavy on her soul, and it kept her quiet, as a great physical weight keeps us motionless. It never entered into her mind to throw her lover off, but from the first she tried to assure herself that there would be a peaceful way out of their difficulty. The assurance was vague, for it contained no element of positive conviction that her father would change his mind. She only had an idea that if she should be very good, the situation would in some mysterious manner improve. To be good, she must be patient, outwardly submissive, abstain from judging her father too harshly, and from committing any act of open defiance. He was perhaps right, after all, to think as he did, by which Catherine meant not in the least that his judgment of Morris's motives in seeking to marry her was perhaps a just one, but that it was probably natural and proper that conscientious parents should be suspicious and even unjust. There were probably people in the world as bad as her father supposed Morris to be, and if there were the slightest chance of Morris being one of these sinister persons, the doctor was right in taking it into account. 
Of course he could not know what she knew, how the purest love and truth were seated in the young man's eyes, but heaven, in its time, might appoint a way of bringing him to such knowledge. Catherine expected a good deal of heaven, and referred to the skies the initiative, as the French say, in dealing with her dilemma. She could not imagine herself imparting any kind of knowledge to her father. There was something superior, even in his injustice, and absolute in his mistakes. But she could at least be good, and if she were only good enough, heaven would invent some way of reconciling all things. The dignity of her father's errors, and the sweetness of her own confidence, the strict performance of her filial duties, and the enjoyment of Morris Townsend's affection. Poor Catherine would have been glad to regard Mrs. Pennyman as an illuminating agent, a part which this lady herself, indeed, was but imperfectly prepared to play. Mrs. Pennyman took too much satisfaction in the sentimental shadows of this little drama to have, for the moment, any great interest in dissipating them. She wished the plot to thicken, and the advice that she gave her niece tended, in her own imagination, to produce this result. It was rather incoherent counsel, and from one day to another it contradicted itself, but it was pervaded by an earnest desire that Catherine should do something striking. "'You must act, my dear. In your situation the great thing is to act,' said Mrs. Pennyman, who found her niece altogether beneath her opportunities. Mrs. Pennyman's real hope was that the girl would make a secret marriage, at which she should officiate as brideswoman, or duenna. She had a vision of this ceremony being performed in some subterranean chapel. Subterranean chapels in New York were not frequent, but Mrs. Pennyman's imagination was not chilled by trifles, and of the guilty couple—she liked to think of poor Catherine and her suitor as the guilty couple—being shuffled away in a fast-whirling vehicle to some obscure lodging in the suburbs, where she would pay them, in a thick veil, clandestine visits where they would endure a period of romantic privation, and when ultimately, after she should have been their earthly providence, their intercessor, their advocate, and their medium of communication with the world, they would be reconciled to her brother in an artistic tableau, in which she herself should be somehow the central figure. She hesitated as yet to recommend this course to Catherine, but she attempted to draw an attractive picture of it to Morris Townsend. She was in daily communication with the young man, whom she kept informed by letters of the state of affairs in Washington Square. As he had been banished, as she said, from the house, she no longer saw him, but she ended by writing to him that she longed for an interview. This interview could take place only on neutral ground, and she bethought herself greatly before selecting a place of meeting. She had an inclination for Greenwood Cemetery, but she gave it up as too distant. She could not absent herself for so long, as she said, without exciting suspicion. Even she thought of the battery, but that was rather cold and windy besides one's being exposed to intrusion from the Irish emigrants, who at this point alight with great appetites in the New York world. And at last she fixed upon an oyster saloon in the Seventh Avenue, kept by a negro, an establishment of which she knew nothing save that she had noticed it in passing. 
She made an appointment with Morris Townsend to meet him there, and she went to the tryst at dusk, enveloped in an impenetrable veil. He kept her waiting for half an hour. He had almost the whole width of the city to traverse. But she liked to wait. It seemed to intensify the situation. She ordered a cup of tea, which proved excessively bad, and this gave her a sense that she was suffering in a romantic cause. When Morris at last arrived, they sat together for half an hour in the duskiest corner of the back shop, and it is hardly too much to say that this was the happiest half-hour that Mrs. Pennyman had known for years. The situation was really thrilling, and it scarcely seemed to her a false note when her companion asked for an oyster stew, and proceeded to consume it before her eyes. Morris, indeed, needed all the satisfaction that stewed oysters could give him, for it may be intimated to the reader that he regarded Mrs. Pennyman in the light of a fifth wheel to his coach. He was in a state of irritation, naturally, to a gentleman of fine parts, who had been snubbed in a benevolent attempt to confer a distinction upon a young woman of inferior characteristics and the insinuating sympathy of this somewhat desiccated matron appeared to offer him no practical relief. He thought her a humbug, and he judged of humbugs with a good deal of confidence. He had listened and made himself agreeable to her at first in order to get a footing in Washington Square, and at present he needed all his self-command to be decently civil. It would have gratified him to tell her that she was a fantastic old woman, and that he would like to put her into an omnibus and send her home. We know, however, that Morris possessed the virtue of self-control, and he had moreover the constant habit of seeking to be agreeable so that, although Mrs. Pennyman's demeanour only exacerbated his already unquiet nerves, he listened to her with a sombre deference, in which she found much to admire. End of chapter 15 This has been a LibriVox recording of Washington Square, a novel by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Don Murphy, in El Segundo, California, This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www.librivox.org. Washington Square by Henry James. Read for LibriVox by Dawn Murphy in El Segundo, California. Chapter 16 they had, of course, immediately spoken of Catherine. "'Did she send me a message? Or anything?' Morris asked. He appeared to think that she might have sent him a trinket or a lock of her hair. Mrs. Pennyman was slightly embarrassed, for she had not told her niece of her intended expedition. "'Not exactly a message,' she said. "'I didn't ask her for one, because I was afraid to—to to excite her.' I am afraid she is not very excitable, and Morris gave a smile of some bitterness. She is better than that. She is steadfast. She is true. Do you think she will hold fast, then? To the death. Oh, I hope it won't come to that, said Morris. We must be prepared for the worst, and that is what I wished to speak to you about. What do you call the worst? Well— said Mrs. Pennyman, 
my brother's hard intellectual nature oh the devil he is impervious to pity mrs pennyman added by way of explanation do you mean that he won't come round he will never be vanquished by argument i have studied him he will be vanquished only by the accomplished fact the accomplished fact he will come around afterward said mrs pennyman with extreme significance he cares for nothing but facts he must be met by facts well rejoined morris it is a fact that i wished to marry his daughter i met him with that the other day but he was not at all vanquished Mrs. Pennyman was silent a little, and her smile beneath the shadow of her copious bonnet, on the edge of which her black veil was arranged curtain-wise, fixed itself upon Morris's face with a still more tender brilliancy. "'Marry Catherine first, and meet him afterward!' she exclaimed. "'Do you recommend that?' asked the young man, frowning heavily. She was a little frightened, but she went on with considerable boldness. This is the way I see it. A private marriage, a private marriage. She repeated the phrase because she liked it. Do you mean that I should carry Catherine off? What do you call it, elope with her? It is not a crime when you are driven to it, said Mrs. Pennyman. My husband, as I have told you, was a distinguished clergyman, one of the most eloquent men of his day. He once married a young couple that had fled from the house of the young lady's father. He was so interested in their story. He had no hesitation, and everything came out beautifully. The father was afterwards reconciled, and thought everything of the young man. Mr. Pennyman married them in the evening, about seven o'clock. The church was so dark you could scarcely see, and Mr. Pennyman was intensely agitated. He was so sympathetic. I don't believe he could have done it again. Unfortunately, Catherine and I have not Mr. Pennyman to marry us, said Morris. No, but you have me, rejoined Mrs. Pennyman expressively. I can't perform the ceremony, but I can help you. I can watch. The woman's an idiot, thought Morris, but he was obliged to say something different. It was not, however, materially more civil. Was it in order to tell me this that you requested I would meet you here? Mrs. Pennyman had been conscious of a certain vagueness in her errand, and of not being able to offer him any very tangible reward for his long walk. I thought perhaps you would like to see one who is so near to Catherine, she observed with considerable majesty. And also, she added, that you would value an opportunity of sending her something. Morris extended his empty hands with a melancholy smile. I am greatly obliged to you, but I have nothing to send. Haven't you a word? asked his companion, with her suggestive smile coming back. Morris frowned again. Tell her to hold fast, he said rather curtly. That is a good word, a noble word. It will make her happy for many days. She is very touching, very brave. Mrs. Pennyman went on, arranging her mantle and preparing to depart. While she was so engaged, she had an inspiration. She found the phrase that she could boldly offer as a vindication of the step she had taken. 
"'If you marry Catherine at all risks,' she said, "'you will give my brother a proof of your being what he pretends to doubt.' "'What he pretends to doubt? "'Don't you know what that is?' Mrs. Pennyman asked, almost playfully. "'It does not concern me to know,' said Morris grandly. "'Of course it makes you angry.' "'I despise it,' Morris declared. "'Ah, you know what it is, then,' said Mrs. Pennyman, shaking her finger at him. "'He pretends that you like—you like the money.' Morris hesitated a moment, and then, as if he spoke advisedly, "'I do like the money.' "'Ah, but not as he means it. You don't like it more than Catherine.' He leaned his elbows on the table, and buried his head in his hands. "'You torture me!' he murmured. And indeed this was almost the effect of the poor lady's too importunate interest in his situation. But she insisted in making her point. "'If you marry her in spite of him, he will take for granted that you expect nothing of him, and are prepared to do without it, and so he will see you are disinterested.' Morris raised his head a little, following this argument. "'And what shall I gain by that?' "'Why, that he will see that he has been wrong in thinking you have wished to get his money. And, seeing that, I wish he would go to the deuce with it. He will leave it to a hospital.' "'Is that what you mean?' asked Morris. "'No, I don't mean that, though that would be very grand,' Mrs. Pennyman quickly added. I mean that, having done you such an injustice, he will think it his duty, at the end, to make some amends." Morris shook his head, though it must be confessed he was a little struck with this idea. "'Do you think he is so sentimental?' "'He is not sentimental,' said Mrs. Pennyman. "'But, to be perfectly fair to him, I think he has, in his own narrow way, a certain sense of duty.' There passed through Morris Townsend's mind a rapid wonder as to what he might, even under a remote contingency, be indebted to from the action of this principle in Dr. Sloper's breast, and the inquiry exhausted itself in his sense of the ludicrous. "'Your brother has no duties to me,' he said presently, "'and I none to him.' "'Ah, but he has duties to Catherine.' "'Yes, but you see, on that principle, Catherine has duties to him as well. Mrs. Pennyman got up with a melancholy sigh, as if she thought him very unimaginative. She has always performed them faithfully, and now do you think she has no duties to you? Mrs. Pennyman always, even in conversation, italicized her personal pronouns. It would sound harsh to say so. I am so grateful for her love, Morris added. I will tell her you said that. And now, remember that if you need me, I am here. And Mrs. Pennyman, who could think of nothing more to say, nodded vaguely in the direction of Washington Square. Morris looked some moments at the sanded floor of the shop. He seemed to be disposed to linger a moment. At last, looking up with a certain abruptness, "'Is it your belief that if she marries me, he will cut her off?' he asked. Mrs. Pennyman stared a little and smiled. Why, I have explained to you what I think would happen, that in the end it would be the best thing to do. You mean that, whatever she does, in the long run she will get the money? It doesn't depend upon her, but upon you. 
venture to appear as disinterested as you are said mrs pennyman ingeniously morris dropped his eyes on the sanded floor again pondering this and she pursued mr pennyman and i had nothing and we were very happy catherine moreover has her mother's fortune which at the time my sister-in-law married was considered a very handsome one oh don't speak of that said morris and indeed it was quite superfluous for he had contemplated the fact in all its lights austin married a wife with money why shouldn't you ah but your brother was a doctor morris objected well all young men can't be doctors i should think it an extremely loathsome profession said morris with an air of intellectual independence then in a moment he went on rather inconsequently do you suppose there is a will already made in catherine's favour i suppose so even doctors must die and perhaps a little in mine mrs pennyman frankly added and you believe he would certainly change it as regards catherine yes and then change it back again ah but one can't depend on that said morris do you want to depend on it mrs pennyman asked morris blushed a little well i am certainly afraid of being the cause of an injury to catherine ah oh, you must not be afraid be afraid of nothing and everything will go well and then mrs pennyman paid for her cup of tea and morris paid for his oyster stew and they went out together into the dimly lighted wilderness of the seventh avenue the dusk had closed in completely, and the street lamps were separated by wide intervals of a pavement in which cavities and fissures played a disproportionate part. An omnibus, emblazoned with strange pictures, went tumbling over the dislocated cobblestones. "'How will you go home?' Morris asked, following this vehicle with an interested eye. Mrs. Pennyman had taken his arm. She hesitated a moment. "'I think this manner would be pleasant.' she said, and she continued to let him feel the value of his support. So he walked with her through the devious ways of the west side of town, and through the bustle of gathering nightfall in the populous streets, to the quiet precinct of Washington Square. They lingered a moment at the foot of Dr. Sloper's white marble steps, above which was a spotless white door adorned with a glittering silver plate seemed to figure for morris the closed portal of happiness and then mrs pennyman's companion rested a melancholy eye upon a lighted window in the upper part of the house that is my room my dear little room mrs pennyman remarked morris started then i needn't come walking round the square to gaze at it that's as you please but catherine's is behind two noble windows on the second floor i think you can see them from the other street "'I don't want to see them, ma'am,' said Morris, and Morris turned his back to the house. "'I will tell her you have been here at any rate,' said Mrs. Pennyman, pointing to the spot where they stood, "'and I will give her your message, that she is to hold fast. "'Oh, yes, of course. You know I write her all that. "'It seems to say more when it is spoken. "'And remember, if you need me, I am there.' and Mrs. Pennyman glanced at the third floor. On this they separated, and Morris, left to himself, stood looking at the house a moment, 
after which he turned away and took a gloomy walk around the square, on the opposite side, close to the wooden fence. Then he came back and paused for a minute in front of Dr. Sloper's dwelling. His eyes travelled over it, then even rested on the ruddy windows of Mrs. Pennyman's apartment. He thought it a devilish comfortable house. End of chapter 16 This has been a LibriVox recording of Washington Square, a novel by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Don Murphy, in El Segundo, California. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www.librivox.org. Washington Square by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Dawn Murphy, in El Segundo, California. Chapter Seventeen. Mrs. Pennyman told Catherine that evening, the two ladies were sitting in the back parlour, that she had had an interview with Morris Townsend, and on receiving this news the girl started with a sense of pain. She felt angry for the moment. It was almost the first time she had ever felt angry. It seemed to her that her aunt was meddlesome, and from this came a vague apprehension that she would spoil something. "'I don't see why you should have seen him. I don't think it was right,' Catherine said. "'I was so sorry for him. It seemed to me someone ought to see him.' "'No one but I,' said Catherine, who felt as if she were making the most presumptuous speech of her life, and yet at the same time had an instinct that she was right in doing so. "'But you wouldn't, my dear,' Aunt Lavinia rejoined, "'and I didn't know what might have become of him.' "'I have not seen him, because my father has forbidden it,' Catherine said, very simply. There was a simplicity in this, indeed, which fairly vexed Mrs. Pennyman. "'If your father forbade you to go to sleep, I suppose you would keep awake,' she commented. Catherine looked at her. "'I don't understand you. You seem to me very strange.' "'Well, my dear, you will understand me some day.' and Mrs. Pennyman, who was reading the evening paper, which she perused daily from the first line to the last, resumed her occupation. She wrapped herself in silence. She was determined Catherine should ask her for an account of her interview with Morris. But Catherine was silent for so long that she almost lost patience, and she was on the point of remarking to her that she was very heartless when the girl at last spoke. "'What did he say?' she asked. He said he is ready to marry you any day, in spite of everything." Catherine made no answer to this, and Mrs. Pennyman almost lost patience again, owing to which she at last volunteered the information that Morris looked very handsome, but terribly haggard. "'Did he seem sad?' asked her niece. "'He was dark under the eyes.' said Mrs. Pennyman, so different from when I first saw him, though I am not sure that if I had seen him in this condition the first time, I should not have been even more struck with him. There is something brilliant in his very misery. This was, to Catherine's sense, a vivid picture, and though she disapproved, she felt herself gazing at it. "'Where did you see him?' she asked presently. "'In—' 
"'In the Bowery, at a confectioner's,' said Mrs. Pennyman, who had a general idea that she ought to dissemble a little. "'Whereabouts is the place?' Catherine inquired, after another pause. "'Do you wish to go there, my dear?' said her aunt. "'Oh, no!' And Catherine got up from her seat and went to the fire, where she stood looking for a while at the glowing coals. "'Why are you so dry, Catherine?' Mrs. Pennyman said at last. "'So dry? So cold! So irresponsive!' The girl turned very quickly. "'Did he say that?' Mrs. Pennyman hesitated a moment. "'I will tell you what he said. He said he feared only one thing—that you would be afraid.' "'Afraid of what?' "'Afraid of your father.' Catherine turned back to the fire again, and then, after a pause, she said, "'I am afraid of my father.' Mrs. Pennyman got quickly up from her chair and approached her niece. "'Do you mean to give him up, then?' Catherine, for some time, never moved. She kept her eyes on the coals. At last she raised her head and looked at her aunt. "'Why do you push me so?' she asked. "'I don't push you. When have I spoken to you before?' "'It seems to me that you have spoken to me several times.' "'I am afraid it is necessary, then, Catherine,' said Mrs. Pennyman, with a good deal of solemnity. "'I am afraid you don't feel the importance.' She paused a little. Catherine was looking at her. "'The importance of not disappointing that gallant young heart.' and Mrs. Pennyman went back to her chair by the lamp, and with a little jerk picked up the evening paper again. Catherine stood there before the fire, with her hands behind her, looking at her aunt, to whom it seemed that the girl had never had just this dark fixedness in her gaze. "'I don't think you understand, or that you know me,' she said. "'If I don't, it is not wonderful. You trust me so little.' Catherine made no attempt to deny this charge, and for some time more nothing was said. But Mrs. Pennyman's imagination was restless, and the evening paper failed on this occasion to enchain it. "'If you succumb to the dread of your father's wrath,' she said, "'I don't know what will become of us.' "'Did he tell you to say these things to me?' "'He told me to use my influence.' "'You must be mistaken,' said Catherine. "'He trusts me.' "'I hope he may never repent of it.' And Mrs. Pennyman gave a little sharp slap to her newspaper. She knew not what to make of her niece, who had suddenly become stern and contradictious. This tendency on Catherine's part was presently even more apparent. "'You had much better not make any more appointments with Mr. Townsend,' she said. "'I don't think it is right.' Mrs. Pennyman rose with considerable majesty. "'My poor child, are you jealous of me?' she inquired. "'Oh, Aunt Lavinia,' murmured Catherine, blushing. "'I don't think it is your place to teach me what is right.' On this point Catherine made no concession. It can't be right to deceive. I certainly have not deceived you. Yes, but I promised my father. I have no doubt you promised your father, but I have promised him nothing. Catherine had to admit this, and she did so in silence. 
"'I don't believe Mr. Townsend himself likes it,' she said at last. "'Doesn't like meeting me? Not in secret.' "'It was not in secret. The place was full of people.' "'But it was a secret place, away off in the Bowery.' Mrs. Pennyman flinched a little. "'Gentlemen enjoy such things,' she remarked presently. "'I know what gentlemen like.' "'My father wouldn't like it, and if he knew—' "'Pray, do you propose to inform him?' Mrs. Pennyman inquired. "'No, Aunt Lavinia, but please don't do it again.' "'If I do it again, you will inform him? Is that what you mean?' "'I do not share your dread of my brother. I have always known how to defend my own position.' "'But I shall certainly never again take any step on your behalf.' "'You are much too thankless. "'I knew you were not a spontaneous nature, "'but I believed you were firm, "'and I told your father that he would find you so. "'I am disappointed, but your father will not be.' "'And with this Mrs. Pennyman offered her niece "'a brief good-night and withdrew to her own apartment. "'End of chapter 17 "'This has been a LibriVox recording.' Of Washington Square, a novel by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Don Murphy, in El Segundo, California. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www.librivox.org. Washington Square by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Don Murphy, in El Segundo, California. Chapter Eighteen. Catherine sat alone by the fire, sat there for more than an hour, lost in her meditations. Her aunt seemed to her aggressive and foolish, and to see it so clearly, to judge Mrs. Pennyman so positively made her feel old and grave. She did not resent the imputations of weakness. It made no impression on her. For she had not the sense of weakness, and she was not hurt at not being appreciated. She had an immense respect for her father, and she felt that to displease him would be a misdemeanor analogous to an act of profanity in a great temple. But her purpose had slowly ripened, and she believed that her prayers had purified it of its violence. The evening advanced, and the lamp burnt dim without her noticing it. Her eyes were fixed upon her terrible plan. She knew her father was in his study, that he had been there all the evening. From time to time she expected to hear him move. She thought he would perhaps come, as he sometimes came, into the parlour. At last the clock struck eleven and the house was wrapped in silence. The servants had gone to bed. Catherine got up and went slowly to the door of the library, where she waited a moment, motionless. Then she knocked, and then she waited again. Her father had answered her, but she had not the courage to turn the latch. What she had said to her aunt was true enough. She was afraid of him, and in saying that she had no sense of weakness, she meant that she was not afraid of herself. She heard him move within, and he came and opened the door for her. "'What is the matter?' 
asked the doctor. "'You are standing there like a ghost.' She went into the room, but it was some time before she contrived to say what she had come to say. Her father, who was in his dressing-gown and slippers, had been busy at his writing-table, and after looking at her for some moments and waiting for her to speak, he went and seated himself at his papers again. His back was turned to her. She began to hear the scratching of his pen. She remained near the door, with her heart thumping beneath her bodice, and she was very glad that his back was turned, for it seemed to her that she could more easily address herself to this portion of his person than to his face. At last she began, watching it while she spoke. "'You told me that if I should have anything more to say about Mr. Townsend, you would be glad to listen to it.' "'Exactly, my dear,' said the doctor, not turning round, but stopping his pen." Catherine wished it would go on, but she herself continued. "'I thought I would tell you that I have not seen him again, but that I should like to do so.' "'To bid him good-bye?' asked the doctor. The girl hesitated a moment. "'He is not going away.' The doctor wheeled slowly round in his chair with a smile that seemed to accuse her of an epigram. But extremes meet— and Catherine had not intended one. "'It is not to bid him good-bye, then,' her doctor said. "'No, father, not that. At least not for ever. "'I have not seen him again, but I should like to see him,' Catherine repeated. The doctor slowly rubbed his under lip with the feather of his quill. "'Have you written to him?' "'Yes, four times.' "'You have not dismissed him, then?' once would have done that. No, said Catherine, I have asked him, asked him to wait. Her father sat looking at her, and she was afraid he was going to break out into wrath. His eyes were so fine and cold. You are a dear, faithful child, he said at last. Come here to your father, and he got up, holding out his hands towards her. The words were a surprise, and they gave her an exquisite joy. She went to him, and he put his arm round her tenderly, soothingly, and then he kissed her. After this he said, "'Do you wish to make me very happy?' "'I should like to, but I am afraid I can't,' Catherine answered. "'You can if you will. It all depends on your will.' "'Is it to give him up?' said Catherine. "'Yes, it is to give him up.' and he held her still, with the same tenderness, looking into her face and resting his eyes on her averted eyes. There was a long silence. She wished he would release her. "'You are happier than I, father,' she said at last. "'I have no doubt you are unhappy just now, but it is better to be unhappy for three months and get over it, than for many years and never get over it.' "'Yes, if that were so,' said Catherine, it would be so, I am sure of that. She answered nothing, and he went on. Have you no faith in my wisdom, in my tenderness, in my selectitude for your future? Oh, father, murmured the girl, don't you suppose that I know something of men, their vices, their follies, their fallacies? She detached herself and turned upon him. He is not vicious. He is not false. 
Her father kept looking at her with his sharp, pure eye. "'You make nothing of my judgment, then?' "'I can't believe that.' "'I don't ask you to believe it, but to take it on trust.' Catherine was far from saying to herself that this was an ingenious sophism, but she met the appeal none the less squarely. "'What has he done? What do you know?' "'He has never done anything. He is a selfish idler.' "'Oh, father, don't abuse him!' she exclaimed pleadingly. "'I don't mean to abuse him. It would be a great mistake. You may do as you choose,' he added, turning away. "'I may see him again?' "'Just as you choose.' "'Will you forgive me?' "'By no means. It will only be for once.' I don't know what you mean by once. You must either give him up or continue the acquaintance. I wish to explain, to tell him to wait. To wait for what? Till you know him better, till you consent. Don't tell him any such nonsense as that. I know him well enough, and I shall never consent. But we can wait a long time said Catherine, in a tone which meant to express the humblest conciliation, but which had upon her father's nerves the effect of an iteration not characterized by tact. The doctor answered, however, quietly enough, "'Of course, you can wait till I die, if you like.' Catherine gave a cry of natural horror. "'Your engagement will have one delightful effect upon you.' It will make you extremely impatient for that event. Catherine stood staring, and the doctor enjoyed the point he had made. It came to Catherine with the force, or rather with the vague impressiveness, of a logical axiom, which it was not in her province to controvert. And yet, though it was a scientific fact, she felt wholly unable to accept it. "'I would rather not marry, if that were true,' she said. "'Give me proof of it, then, for it is beyond a question that by engaging yourself to Morris Townsend you simply wait for my death.' She turned away, feeling sick and faint. The doctor went on. "'And if you wait for it with impatience, judge, if you please, what his eagerness will be.' Catherine turned it over. Her father's words had such an authority for her that her very thoughts were capable of obeying him. There was a dreadful ugliness in it, which seemed to glare at her through the interposing medium of her own feebler reason. Suddenly, however, she had an inspiration. She almost knew it to be an inspiration. "'If I don't marry before your death, I will not after,' she said. To her father, it must be admitted, this seemed only another epigram— and as obstinacy in unaccomplished minds does not usually select such a mode of expression, he was the more surprised at this wanton play of a fixed idea. "'Do you mean that for impertinence?' he inquired, an inquiry of which, as he made it, he quite perceived the grossness. "'An impertinence? Oh, father, what terrible things you say! "'If you don't wait for my death!' You might as well marry immediately. There is nothing else to wait for. For some time Catherine made no answer, but she finally said, I think Morris, little by little, might persuade you. I shall never let him speak to me again. I dislike him too much. 
Catherine gave a long, low sigh. She tried to stifle it, for she had made up her mind that it was wrong to make a parade of her trouble, and to endeavour to act upon her father by the meretrish aid of emotion. Indeed, she even thought it wrong, in the sense of being inconsiderate, to attempt to act upon his feelings at all. Her part was to effect some gentle, gradual change in his intellectual perception of poor Morris's character. But the means of effecting such a change were at present shrouded in mystery, and she felt miserably helpless and hopeless. She had exhausted all arguments, all replies. Her father might have pitied her, and in fact he did so, but he was sure he was right. "'There is one thing you can tell Mr. Townsend when you see him again,' he said that if you marry without my consent, I don't leave you a farthing of money. That will interest him more than anything else you can tell him." "'That would be very right,' Catherine answered. "'I ought not, in that case, to have a farthing of your money.' "'My dear child,' the doctor observed, laughing, <laughs> "'your simplicity is touching.' Make that remark in that tone, and with that expression of countenance, to Mr. Townsend, and take note of his answer. It won't be polite. It will express irritation. And I shall be glad of that, as it will put me in the right, unless, indeed, which is perfectly possible, you should like him the better for being rude to you. He will never be rude to me, said Catherine gently. "'Tell him what I say, all the same.' She looked at her father, and her quiet eyes filled with tears. "'I think I will see him, then,' she murmured, in her timid voice. "'Exactly as you choose.' And he went to the door and opened it for her to go. The movement gave her a terrible sense of his turning her off. "'It will be only once, for the present,' she added, lingering a moment." "'Exactly as you choose,' he repeated, standing there with his hand on the door. "'I have told you what I think. If you see him, you will be an ungrateful, cruel child. You will have given your old father the greatest pain of his life.' This was more than the poor girl could bear. Her tears overflowed, and she moved toward her grimly consistent parent with a pitiful cry. Her hands were raised in supplication, but he sternly evaded this appeal. Instead of letting her sob out her misery on his shoulder, he simply took her by the arm and directed her course across the threshold, closing the door gently but firmly behind her. After he had done so, he remained listening. For a long time there was no sound. He knew that she was standing outside. He was sorry for her, as I have said, but he was so sure he was right. At last he heard her move away, and then her footstep creaked faintly upon the stairs. The doctor took several turns round his study, with his hands in his pockets, and a thin sparkle, possibly of irritation, but partly also of something like humour in his eye. "'By Jove!' he said to himself, "'I believe she will stick! I believe she will stick!' and this idea of Catherine sticking appeared to have a comical side, and to offer a prospect of entertainment. He determined, as he said to himself, to see it out. End of chapter 18
This has been a LibriVox recording of Washington Square, a novel by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Don Murphy, in El Segundo, California. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www.librivox.org. Washington Square by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Dawn Murphy in El Segundo, California. Chapter 19 it was for reasons connected with this determination that on the morrow he sought a few words of private conversation with Mrs. Pennyman. He sent for her to the library, and he there informed her that he hoped very much that, as regards this affair of Catherine's, she would mind her P's and Q's. "'I don't know what you mean by such an expression,' said his sister. "'You speak as if I were learning the alphabet.' the alphabet of common sense is something you will never learn the doctor permitted himself to respond have you called me here to insult me mrs pennyman inquired not at all simply to advise you you have taken up young townsend that's your own affair i have nothing to do with your sentiments your fancies your affections your delusions but what i request of you is that you will keep these things to yourself I have explained my views to Catherine. She understands them perfectly, and anything that she does further in the way of encouraging Mr. Townsend's attentions will be in deliberate opposition to my wishes. Anything that you should do in the way of giving her aid and comfort will be—permit me the expression—distinctly treasonable. You know high treason is a capital offence. Take care how you incur the penalty." Mrs. Pennyman threw back her head with a certain expansion of the eye which she occasionally practised. "'It seems to me that you talk like a great autocrat.' "'I talk like my daughter's father.' "'Not like a sister's brother,' cried Lavinia. "'My dear Lavinia,' said the doctor, "'I sometimes wonder whether I am your brother. We are so extremely different.' In spite of differences, however, we can, at a pinch, understand each other, and that is the essential thing just now. Walk straight with regard to Mr. Townsend, that's all I ask. It is highly probable you have been corresponding with him for the last three weeks, perhaps even seeing him. I don't ask you, you needn't tell me. He had a moral conviction that she would contrive to tell a fib about the matter which would disgust him to listen to. Whatever you have done, stop doing it. That's all I wish. Don't you wish also to chance to murder your child? Mrs. Pennyman inquired. On the contrary, I wish to make her live and be happy. You will kill her. She passed a dreadful night. She won't die of one dreadful night, nor a dozen. Remember that I am a distinguished physician." Mrs. Pennyman hesitated a moment, then she risked her retort. "'Your being a distinguished physician has not prevented you from already losing two members of your family.' She had risked it, but her brother gave her such a terrible, incisive look, a look so like a surgeon's lancet, that she was frightened at her courage. And he answered her in words that corresponded to the look. 
it may not prevent me either from losing the society of still another mrs pennyman took herself off with whatever air of deprecated merit was at her command and repaired to catherine's room where the poor girl was closeted she knew all about the dreadful night for the two had met again the evening before after catherine left her father mrs pennyman was on the landing of the second floor when her niece came upstairs it was not remarkable that a person of so much subtlety should have discovered that Catherine had been shut up with a doctor. It was still less remarkable that she should have felt an extreme curiosity to learn the result of this interview, and that this sentiment, combined with her great amiability and generosity, should have prompted her to regret the sharp words lately exchanged between her niece and herself. As the unhappy girl came into sight in the dusky corridor, she made a lively demonstration of sympathy. Catherine's bursting heart was equally obvious. She only knew that her aunt was taking her into her arms. Mrs. Pennyman drew her into Catherine's own room, and the two women sat there together far into the small hours, the younger one with her head on the other's lap, sobbing, and sobbing at first in a soundless, stifled manner and then at last perfectly still. It gratified Mrs. Pennyman to be able to feel conscientiously that this scene virtually removed the interdict which Catherine had placed upon her, indulging in further communion with Morris Townsend. She was not gratified, however, when in coming back to her niece's room before breakfast she found that Catherine had risen and was preparing herself for this meal. "'You should not go to breakfast,' she said. "'You are not well enough after your fearful night.' "'Yes, I am very well, and I am only afraid of being late.' "'I can't understand you,' Mrs. Pennyman cried. "'You should stay in bed for three days.' "'Oh, I could never do that,' said Catherine, to whom this idea presented no attractions. Mrs. Pennyman was in despair, and she noted, with extreme annoyance, that the trace of the night's tears had completely vanished from Catherine's eyes. She had a most impracticable physique. "'What effect do you expect to have upon your father?' her aunt demanded, "'if you come plunging down without a vestige of any sort of feeling, as if nothing in the world had happened.' "'He would not like me to lie in bed,' said Catherine simply." all the more reason for doing it. How else do you expect to move him?" Catherine thought a little. I don't know how, but not in that way. I wish to be just as usual. And she finished dressing, and accordingly to her aunt's expression, went plumping down into the paternal presence. She was really too modest for consistent pathos. And yet it was perfectly true that she had had a dreadful night. Even after Mrs. Pennyman left her, she had had no sleep. She lay staring at the uncomforting gloom, with her eyes and ears filled with the movement with which her father had turned her out of his room, and of the words in which he told her that she was a heartless daughter. Her heart was breaking. She had heart enough for that. At moments it seemed to her that she believed him, and that to do what she was doing a girl must indeed be bad. She was bad, but she couldn't help it she would try to appear good, even if her heart were perverted, and from time to time she had a fancy that she might accomplish something by ingenious concessions to form, though she could persist in caring for Morris. 
Catherine's ingenuities were indefinite, and were not called upon to expose their hollowness. The best of them, perhaps, showed itself in that freshness of aspect which was so discouraging to Mrs. Pennyman, who was amazed at the absence of haggardness in the young woman, who for a whole night had lain quivering beneath a father's curse. Poor Catherine was conscious of her freshness. It gave her a feeling about the future which rather added to the weight upon her mind. It seemed a proof that she was strong and solid and dense, and would live to a great age longer than might be generally convenient. And this idea was pressing, for it appeared to saddle her with a pretension the more, just when the cultivation of any pretension was inconsistent with her doing right. She wrote that day to Morris Townsend, requesting him to come and see her on the morrow, using very few words and explaining nothing. She would explain everything face to face. End of chapter 19 this has been a LibriVox recording of Washington Square, a novel by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Don Murphy, in El Segundo, California. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www. Dot LibriVox dot org. Washington Square by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Don Murphy, in El Segundo, California. Chapter Twenty. On the morrow, in the afternoon, she heard his voice at the door and his step in the hall. She received him in the big, bright front parlour, and she instructed the servant that if any one should call, she was particularly engaged. She was not afraid of her father's coming in, for at that hour he was always driving about town. When Morris stood there, before her, the first thing that she was conscious of was that he was even more beautiful to look at than fond recollection had painted him. The next was that he had pressed her in his arms. When she was free again, it appeared to her that she had now indeed thrown herself into the gulf of defiance, and even, for an instant, that she had been married to him. He told her that she had been very cruel, and had made him very unhappy, and Catherine felt acutely the difficulty of her destiny, which forced her to give pain in such opposite quarters. But she wished that, instead of reproaches, however tender, he would give her help. He was certainly wise enough and clever enough to invent some issue from their troubles. She expressed this belief, and Morris received the assurance as if he thought it natural. But he interrogated it first, as was natural too, rather than committed himself to marking out a course. "'You should not have made me wait so long,' he said. "'I don't know how I have been living. Every hour seemed like years. You should have decided sooner.' "'Decided?' Catherine asked. "'Decided whether you would keep me or give me up.' "'Oh, Morris!' she cried, with a long, tender murmur. "'I never thought of giving you up.' "'What, then, were you waiting for?' The young man was ardently logical. "'I thought my father might—might—' and she hesitated. "'Might see how unhappy you were? 
oh no but that he might look at it differently and now have you sent me to tell me that at last he does so is that it this hypothetical optimism gave the poor girl a pang no morris she said solemnly he looks at it still in the same way then why have you sent for me because i wanted to see you cried catherine piteously that's an excellent reason surely but did you want to look at me only have you nothing to tell me his beautiful persuasive eyes were fixed upon her face and she wondered what answer would be noble enough to give to such a gaze as that for a moment her own eyes took it in and then i did want to look at you she said gently but after this speech most inconsistently she hid her face morris watched her for a moment attentively will you marry me to-morrow he asked suddenly to-morrow next week then any time within a month isn't it better to wait said catherine to wait for what she hardly knew for what but this tremendous leap alarmed her till we have thought about it a little more he shook his head sadly and reproachfully i thought you had been thinking about it these three weeks do you want to turn it over in your mind for five years you have given me more than time enough my poor girl he added in a moment you are not sincere catherine colored from brow to chin and her eyes filled with tears oh how can you say that she murmured why you must take me or leave me said morris very reasonably you can't please your father and me both you must choose between us i have chosen you she said passionately then marry me next week she stood gazing at him isn't there any other way none that i know of for arriving at the same result if there is i should be happy to hear of it catherine could think of nothing of the kind and morris's luminosity seemed almost pitiless the only thing she could think of was that her father might after all come round and she articulated with an awkward sense of her helplessness in doing so a wish that this miracle might happen do you think it is at the least degree likely morris asked it would be if he could only know you he can know me if he will what is to prevent it his ideas his reasons said catherine they are so so terribly strong she trembled with the recollection of them yet strong cried morris i would rather you should think them weak oh nothing about my father is weak said the girl morris turned away walking to the window where he stood looking out you are terribly afraid of him he remarked at last she felt no impulse to deny it because she had no shame in it for if it was no honor to herself at least it was an honor to him i suppose i must be she said simply then you don't love me not as i love you if you fear your father more than you love me then your love is not what i hoped it was oh my friend she said going to him do i fear anything he demanded turning round on her for your sake what am i not ready to face 
"'You are noble, you are brave,' she answered, stopping short at a distance that was almost respectful. "'Small good it does me, if you are so timid.' "'I don't think I am, really,' said Catherine. "'I don't know what you mean by really. It is really enough to make us miserable.' I should be strong enough to wait, to wait a long time. And suppose after a long time your father should hate me worse than ever. He wouldn't, he couldn't. He would be touched by my fidelity, is that what you mean? If he is so easily touched, then why should you be afraid of him? This was much to the point, and Catherine was struck by it. I will try not to be, she said, and she stood there submissively, the image, in advance, of a dutiful and responsible wife. This image could not fail to recommend itself to Morris Townsend, and he continued to give proof of the high estimation in which he held her. It could only have been at the prompting of such a sentiment that he presently mentioned to her that the course recommended by Mrs. Pennyman, was an immediate union, regardless of consequences. "'Yes, Aunt Pennyman would like that,' Catherine said, simply, and yet with a certain shrewdness. It must, however, have been in pure simplicity, and from motives quite untouched by sarcasm, that a few minutes after she went on to say to Morris that her father had given her a message for him. It was quite on her conscience to deliver this message, and had the mission been ten times more painful, she would have as scrupulously performed it. He told me to tell you, to tell you very distinctly, and directly from him, that if I marry without his consent, I shall not inherit a penny of his fortune. He made a great point of this. He seemed to think, he seemed to think— Morris flushed, as any young man of spirit might have flushed, at an imputation of baseness. What did he seem to think? That it would make a difference. It will make a difference in many things. We shall be by many thousands of dollars the poorer, and that is a great difference. But it will make none in my affection. We shall not want the money, said Catherine, for you know I have a good deal myself. "'Yes, my dear girl, I know you have something, and he can't touch that.' "'He would never,' said Catherine. "'My mother left it to me.' Morris was silent a while. "'He was very positive about this, was he?' he asked at last. "'He thought such a message would annoy me terribly and make me throw off the mask, eh?' "'I don't know what he thought,' said Catherine sadly. "'Please tell him that I care for this message as much as for that.' And Morris snapped his finger sonorously. "'I don't think I could tell him that.' "'Do you know you sometimes disappoint me?' said Morris. "'I should think I might. I disappoint everyone—father and Aunt Pennyman. "'Well, it doesn't matter with me, because I am fonder of you than they are.' "'Yes, Morris,' said the girl, with her imagination, what there was of it, swimming in this happy truth, which seemed, after all, invidious to no one. "'Is it your belief that he will stick to it, stick to it forever, to this idea of disinheriting you, that your goodness and patience will never wear out his cruelty, 
The trouble is that if I marry you, he will think I am not good. He will think that a proof. Ah, then he will never forgive you. This idea, sharply expressed by Morris's handsome lips, renewed for the moment to the poor girl's temporarily pacified conscience all its dreadful vividness. Oh, you must love me very much, she cried. There is no doubt of that, my dear, her lover rejoined. You don't like that word, disinherited, he added in a moment. It isn't the money. It is that he should, that he should feel so. I suppose it seems to you a kind of curse, said Morris. It must be very dismal. But don't you think, he went on presently, that if you were to try to be very clever and to set rightly about it, you might in the end conjure it away? Don't you think, he continued further, in a tone of sympathetic speculation, that a really clever woman in your place might bring him round at last? Don't you think? Here suddenly Morris was interrupted. These ingenious inquiries had not reached Catherine's ears. The terrible word disinheritance, with all its impressive moral reprobation, was still ringing there, seemed indeed to gather force as it lingered. The mortal chill of her situation struck more deeply into her childlike heart, and she was overwhelmed by a feeling of loneliness and danger. But her refuge was there, close to her, and she put out her hands to grasp it. Oh, Morris, she said with a shudder, I will marry you as soon as you please. And she surrendered herself, leaning her head on his shoulder. My dear good girl, he exclaimed, looking down at his prize, and then he looked up again, rather vaguely, with parted lips and lifted eyebrows. End of chapter 20 this has been a LibriVox recording of Washington Square, a novel by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Don Murphy, in El Segundo, California. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www. Dot LibriVox dot org. Washington Square by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Don Murphy, in El Segundo, California. Chapter Twenty One. Doctor Sloper very soon imparted his conviction to Mrs. Almond in the same terms in which he had announced it to himself. She's going to stick, by Jove! She's going to stick! Do you mean that she is going to marry him? Mrs. Almond inquired. I don't know that, but she is not going to break down. She's going to drag out the engagement, in hope of making me relent. And shall you not relent? Shall a geometric proposition relent? I am not so superficial. Doesn't geometry treat of surfaces? asked Mrs. Almond, who, as we know, was clever, smiling. Yes, but it treats of them profoundly. Catherine and her young man are my surfaces. I have taken their measure. You speak as if it surprised you. It is immense. There will be a great deal to observe. You are shockingly cold-blooded, said Mrs. Almond. 
I need to be, with all this hot blood about me. Young Townsend, indeed, is cool. I must allow him that merit. I can't judge him, Mrs. Almond answered, but I am not at all surprised at Catherine. I confess I am a little. She must have been so deucedly divided and bothered. Say it amuses you outright. I don't see why it should be such a joke that your daughter adores you. It is the point where the adoration stops that I find it interesting to fix. It stops where the other sentiment begins. Not at all. That would be simple enough. The two things are extremely mixed up, and the mixture is extremely odd. It will produce some third element, and that's what I'm waiting to see. I wait with suspense, with positive excitement, and that is a sort of emotion that I didn't suppose Catherine would ever provide for me. I am really very much obliged to her. She will cling, said Mrs. Almond. She will certainly cling. Yes, as I say, she will stick. Cling is prettier. That's what those very simple natures always do, and nothing could be simpler than Catherine. She doesn't take many impressions, but when she takes one, she keeps it. She is like a copper kettle that receives a dent. You may polish up the kettle, but you can't efface the mark. We must try and polish up Catherine, said the doctor. I will take her to Europe. She won't forget him in Europe. He will forget her then. Mrs. Almond looked grave. Should you really like that? Extremely, said the doctor. Mrs. Pennyman, meanwhile, lost little time in putting herself again in communication with Morris Townsend. She requested him to favor her with another interview, but she did not on this occasion select an oyster saloon as the scene of their meeting. She proposed that he should join her at the door of a certain church after service on Sunday afternoon, and she was careful not to appoint the place of worship which she usually visited, and where, as she said, the congregation would have spied upon her. She picked out a less elegant resort, and on issuing from its portal at the hour she had fixed, she saw the young man standing apart. She offered him no recognition until she had crossed the street and he had followed her to some distance. Here, with a smile, "'Excuse my apparent want of cordiality,' she said. "'You know what to believe about that. Prudence before everything.' And on his asking her in what direction they should walk, "'Where we shall be least observed,' she murmured. Morris was not in high good humor, and his response to this speech was not particularly gallant. I don't flatter myself we shall be much observed anywhere. Then he turned recklessly toward the center of town. I hope you have come to tell me that he is knocked under, he went on. I am afraid I am not altogether the harbinger of good, and yet, too, I am to a certain extent a messenger of peace. I have been thinking a great deal, Mr. Townsend, said Mrs. Pennyman. You think too much. I suppose I do, but I can't help it. My mind is so terribly active. When I give myself, I give myself. I pay the penalty in my headaches, my famous headaches, a perfect circlet of pain, but I carry it as a queen carries her crown. Would you believe that I have one now? I wouldn't, however, have missed our rendezvous for anything. 
I have something very important to tell you. Well, let's have it, said Morris. I was perhaps a little headlong the other day in advising you to marry immediately. I have been thinking it over, and now I see it just a little differently. You seem to have a great many different ways of seeing the same object. Their number is infinite, said Mrs. Pennyman, in a tone which seemed to suggest that this convenient faculty was one of her brightest attributes. I recommend you take one way and stick to it, Morris replied. Ah, but it isn't easy to choose. My imagination is never quiet, never satisfied. It makes me a bad adviser, perhaps, but it makes me a capital friend. Hm, a capital friend who gives bad advice, said Morris, not intentionally, and who hurries off at every risk to make the most humble excuses. Well, what do you advise me now? To be very patient, to watch and wait. And is that bad advice or good? That is not for me to say, Mrs. Pennyman rejoined with some dignity. I only claim that it is sincere. And will you come to me next week and recommend something different and equally sincere? I may come to you next week and tell you that I am in the streets. In the streets? I have had a terrible scene with my brother, and he threatens, if anything happens, to turn me out of the house. You know I am a poor woman. Morris had a speculative idea that she had a little property, but he naturally did not press this. I should be very sorry to see you suffer martyrdom for me, he said, but you make your brother out a regular Turk. Mrs. Pennyman hesitated a little. I certainly do not regard Austin as an orthodox Christian. And am I to wait till he is converted? Wait, at any rate, till he is less violent. Bide your time, Mr. Townsend. Remember the prize is great. Morris walked along some time in silence, tapping the railings and gate-posts very sharply with his stick. You certainly are devilish inconsistent. He broke out at last. I have already got Catherine to consent to a private marriage. Mrs. Pennyman was indeed inconsistent, for at this news she gave a little jump of gratification. Oh, when and where? she cried, and then she stopped short. Morris was a little vague about this. That isn't fixed, but she consents. It's deuced awkward now to back out. Mrs. Pennyman, as I say, had stopped short, and she stood there with her eyes fixed brilliantly on her companion. Mr. Townsend, she proceeded, shall I tell you something? Catherine loves you so much that you may do anything. This declaration was slightly ambiguous, and Morris opened his eyes. I am happy to hear it, but what do you mean by anything? You may postpone, you may change about. She won't think the worse of you. Morris stood there still, with his raised eyebrows. Then he said, simply and rather dryly, Ah! After this he remarked to Mrs. Pennyman that if she walked so slowly she would attract notice, and he succeeded after a fashion in hurrying her back to the domicile of which her tenure had become so insecure. End of chapter 21 This has been a LibriVox recording of Washington Square, a novel by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Don Murphy, in El Segundo, California, 
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www.librivox.org. Washington Square by Henry James. Read for LibriVox by Dawn Murphy in El Segundo, California. Chapter Twenty Two. He had slightly misrepresented the matter in saying that Catherine had consented to take the great step. We left her just now, declaring she would burn her ships behind her, but Morris, after having elicited this declaration, had become conscious of good reasons for not taking it up. He avoided, gracefully enough, fixing a day, though he left her under the impression that he had his eye on one. Catherine may have had her difficulties, but those of her circumspect suitor were also worthy of consideration. The prize was certainly great, but it was only to be won by striking the happy mean between precipitancy and caution. It would be all very well to take one's jump and trust to Providence. Providence was more especially on the side of clever people, and clever people were known by an indisposition to risk their bones. The ultimate reward of a union with a young woman who was both unattractive and impoverished ought to be connected with immediate disadvantages, by some very palpable chain. Between the fear of losing Catherine, and her possible fortune altogether, and the fear of taking her too soon and finding this possible fortune as void of actuality as a collection of emptied bottles, it was not comfortable for Morris Townsend to choose a fact that should be remembered by readers disposed to judge harshly of a young man who may have struck them as making but an indifferently successful use of fine natural parts. He had not forgotten that in any event Catherine had her own ten thousand a year. He had devoted an abundance of meditation to this circumstance, but with his fine parts he rated himself high, and he had a perfectly definite appreciation of his value, which seemed to him inadequately represented by the sum I have mentioned. At the same time he reminded himself that this sum was considerable, that everything is relative, and that if a modest income is less desirable than a large one, the complete absence of revenue is nowhere accounted an advantage. These reflections gave him plenty of occupation, and it made it necessary that he should trim his sail. Dr. Sloper's opposition was the unknown quantity in the problem he had to work out. The natural way to work it out was by marrying Catherine but in mathematics there are many shortcuts, and Morris was not without a hope that he should yet discover one. When Catherine took him at his word, and consented to renounce the attempt to mollify her father, he drew back skilfully enough, as I have said, and kept the wedding-day still an open question. Her faith in his sincerity was so complete that she was incapable of suspecting that he was playing with her. Her trouble just now was of another kind. The poor girl had an admirable sense of honour, and from the moment she had brought herself to the point of violating her father's wish, it seemed to her that she had no right to enjoy his protection. It was on her conscience that she ought to live under his roof only so long as she conformed to his wisdom. There was a great deal of glory in such a position, but poor Catherine felt that she had forfeited her claim to it. 
she had cast her lot with a young man against whom he had solemnly warned her and broken the contract under which he provided her with a happy home she could not give up the young man so she must leave the home and the sooner the object of her preference offered her another the sooner her situation would lose its awkward twist this was close reasoning but it was commingled with an infinite amount of merely instinctive penitence catherine's days at this point were dismal and the weight of some of her hours was almost more than she could bear her father never looked at her never spoke to her he knew perfectly what he was about and this was part of a plan she looked at him as much as she dared for she was afraid of seeming to offer herself to his observation and she pitied him for the sorrow she had brought upon him she held up her head and busied her hands and went about her daily occupations and when the state of things in washington square seemed intolerable she closed her eyes and indulged herself with an intellectual vision of the man for whose sake she had broken a sacred law mrs pennyman of the three persons in washington square had much the most of the manner that belongs to a great crisis if catherine was quiet she was perfectly quiet as i may say and her pathetic effects which there was no one to notice were entirely unstudied and unintended if the doctor was stiff and dry and absolutely indifferent to the presence of his companions it was so lightly neatly easily done that you would have had to know him well to discover that on the whole he rather enjoyed having to be so disagreeable but mrs pennyman was elaborately reserved and significantly silent there was a richer rustle in the very deliberate movements to which she confined herself and when she occasionally spoke in connection with some very trivial event she had the air of meaning something deeper than what she said between catherine and her father nothing had passed since the evening she went to speak to him in his study she had something to say to him it seemed to her she ought to say it but she kept it back for fear of irritating him he also had something to say to her but he was determined not to speak first he was interested as we know in seeing how if she were left to herself she would stick at last she told him she had seen morris townsend again and that their relations remained quite the same i think we shall marry before very long and probably meanwhile i'll see him rather often about once a week not more the doctor looked at her coldly from head to foot as if she had been a stranger it was the first time his eyes had rested on her for a week which was fortunate if that was to be their expression why not three times a week he asked what prevents your meeting as often as you choose she turned away a moment there were tears in her eyes then she said it is better once a week i don't see how it is better it is as bad as it can be if you flatter yourself that i care for little modifications of that sort you are very much mistaken it is as wrong of you to see him once a week as it would be to see him all day long not that it matters to me however Catherine tried to follow these words, but they seemed to lead toward a vague horror from which she recoiled. "'I think we shall marry pretty soon,' she repeated at last. Her father gave her his dreadful look again, as if she were someone else. "'Why do you tell me that? It's no concern of mine.' 
"'Oh, father!' she broke out. "'Don't you care, even if you do feel so?' "'Not a button. Once you marry, it's quite the same to me when, or where, or why you do it. And if you think to compound your folly by hoisting your fly in this way, you may spare yourself the trouble.' With this he turned away. But the next day he spoke to her of his own accord, and his manner was somewhat changed. "'Shall you be married within the next four or five months?' he asked. "'I don't know, father,' said Catherine. "'It is not very easy for us to make up our minds.' "'Put it off, then, for six months, and in the meantime I will take you to Europe. I should like you very much to go.' It gave her such delight after his words of the day before to hear that he should like— her to do something, and that he still had in his heart any of the tenderness of preference that she gave a little exclamation of joy. But then she became conscious that Morris was not included in this proposal, and that, as regards really going, she would greatly prefer to remain at home with him. But she blushed, nonetheless, more comfortably than she had done of late. It would be delightful to go to Europe, she remarked, with a sense that the idea was not original, and that her tone was not all it might be. Very well, then, we will go. Pack your clothes. I had better tell Mr. Townsend, said Catherine. Her father fixed his eyes upon her. If you mean that you had better ask his leave, all that remains to me is to hope he will give it. The girl was sharply touched by the pathetic ring of the words. It was the most calculated, the most dramatic little speech the doctor had ever uttered. She felt this was a great thing for her, under the circumstances, to have this fine opportunity of showing him her respect, and yet there was something else that she felt as well, and that she presently expressed. "'I sometimes think that if I do what you dislike so much, I ought not to stay with you.' to stay with me. If I live with you, I ought to obey you. If that's your theory, it's certainly mine, said the doctor, with a dry laugh. But if I don't obey you, I ought not to live with you, to enjoy your kindness and protection. This striking argument gave the doctor a sudden sense of having underestimated his daughter, it seemed even more than worthy of a young woman who had revealed the quality of unaggressive obstinacy. But it displeased him, displeased him deeply, and he signified as much. "'That idea is in very bad taste,' he said. "'Did you get it from Mr. Townsend?' "'Oh, no. It's my own,' said Catherine eagerly. "'Keep it to yourself, then,' her father answered, more than ever determined she should go to Europe." End of chapter 22 This has been a LibriVox recording of Washington Square, a novel by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Don Murphy, in El Segundo, California. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.